Blog Talk Radio. and beyond blog talk radio this is your guest host Nathan elaine kemp i want to welcome our callers and chatters to research at the national archives and beyond this show will provide individuals interested in genealogy an opportunity to listen learn and take action you can join this show every thursday at 9 p.m eastern time and 8 p.m. Central, where Bernice Alexander Bennett will have a wonderful lineup of experts who will share resources, stories, and answer your burning genealogy questions. All of the guests share a deep passion and knowledge of genealogy and history. If you have logged in as a guest and wish to participate in the chat, you can sign in through your Facebook account or Blog Talk Radio. I will also open the lines in the second half of the show so that you can ask questions of tonight's guest. In a previous episode, Regina E. Mason talked about her 15-year journey in authenticating the pioneering work of her direct ancestor, her third great-grandfather, William Grimes, author of the first fugitive slave narrative in American history. Tonight's guest spent a number of years researching and then writing a spellbinding story about another fugitive slave based on letters and journals of those who befriended her. To free a family, the journey of Mary Walker is the story of Mary Walker an enslaved woman from North Carolina who escaped bondage in 1848, leaving behind her children and mother. Mary Walker then spent many years seeking to recover her family through ransom, ruse, or rescue. Dr. Nathan's book reconstructs Mary Walker's experience in bondage and brings to life the anguished but unrelenting quest to liberate her family. Dr. Sidney Nathans is Professor Emeritus of History at Duke University. He is a recipient of fellowships from the Guggenheim and Rockefeller Foundations. To Free a Family, The Journey of Mary Walker is the 2013 recipient 
of the Darling Clark Hine Award of the Organization of American Historians as the best book in African-American women's and gender history. Let me give a warm welcome to Dr. Sydney Nathans to research at the National Archives and beyond. Welcome, Dr. Nathans. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be talking with you and your listeners. It's great to have you here. Before we discuss your wonderful book, I understand that you learned recently that your book has been awarded, well, has been nominated for a particular award. Would you please share that information with our listeners? The book is one of three finalists for the Frederick Douglass Prize for the best book in the subject of slavery and or abolition. It's awarded by the Gilder Lehrman Center, which is based at Yale University. And it's a great honor to be one of the three finalists for that. I'm very grateful to the committee that selected it. Well, congratulations. I definitely feel it is well-deserved. Thank you. Let's, let's now talk about your book. How and when did you first become aware of a fugitive slave named Mary Walker? It was 1976, and I was interested in the question which was burning at the time of the impact of slavery on the black family, and there were two great books that came out the same year on that subject. One was a famous book that most of your listeners will have heard of, Roots, by Alex Haley, and the other was a book by a scholar, Herbert Gutman, called The Black Family in Slavery and Freedom. And the best single piece of evidence that Herbert Gutman found that demonstrated the fidelity and the commitment of black people to keeping their families and loving their families was a letter by Mary Walker, by, about Mary Walker, by a man who was attempting to appeal to her former slave owner to release her children and to let her buy her children. So it was in that context that I first came across that letter. I was working on another project at the time, so I couldn't get to work on that, but I was hooked on the letter, and I was hooked on the poignancy of the letter and wondered from that point on, well, what, who was Mary Walker and what happened to her children? Let me ask you a follow-up question. How long did it take you between the time that you first discovered this information to writing the book, how much time did you spend to put together Mary Walker's story? Well, from the time I actually just decided, okay, I'm going to work on this story, to the time I finally typed the last word in the in the manuscript, it was 23 years. Wow. And, and this was my short-term project. I still got another one that I started even before that that I'm going to go back to eventually, go back to tomorrow, <laughs> as a matter of fact. That's absolutely dedication to a particular subject, 23 years. Yes. Amazing. I believe there are no known photographs of Mary Walker. How was she described with regard to her physical features? She was described as light, light skin, like a white lady, or long straight hair, like a white lady, or even lightish eyes tending to blue. And one woman even described her as a white African. So she was a very fair-skinned person whom most of the people who described her, whether they were black or, or white, thought could easily have been uh, a white person and thought of as a white person. Uh, she identified as an African-American person for the entirety of her life. Who and I wish I could have found a photograph. 
that would, that would have been that would Great. have been uh, wonderful to to have yep. a photo to go along with the wonderful story that you have written. Who owned Mary Walker? She was owned by the Cameron family of North Carolina, and in particular, at the time of her escape, she was owned by a man named Duncan Cameron. Would you provide so, some background information about the Camerons? The Camerons were probably the largest slave owners in North Carolina and one of the largest in the South. Um, by the plantation and the ownership of enslaved people began in 1776. And three generations later, by 1860, the family owned 1,000 people and 30,000 acres of land spread over three different states. So these were huge planters uh, in not only the North Carolina, but also in the South as well. On page 12 of your book, you write, quote, In 1848, Mary Walker was the mother of three children residing in Raleigh, North Carolina, the youngest age four and the oldest 16. She was herself the fourth generation of her family to belong to the same line of slave owners going back to the middle of the 18th century, unquote. You then identify by name Mary's great-grandparents, Molly and Yellow Daniel, her grandmother, Aggie, and her mother, Priscilla or Scylla. What sources did you consult which revealed Mary Walker's family tree? I was very lucky. This was not only a family that had large numbers of people and large numbers of acres, but they had large correspondence. And in that correspondence, they had the lists of enslaved people year by year. These were inventories that were done for accounting purposes, for tax purposes. And Herbert Gutman discovered these lists well before I did and was the first really to make sense of them because he discovered that the, the lists were done in pattern. So you had Yellow Daniel and Molly and a first child, let's say Mary, and then uh, the list for 1780. Molly and Yellow Daniel and Mary and Aggie and so forth and so on. So what he did was to do the genealogy work for me. He discovered these were not unusual for large planters. They kept families in family clusters, and he was able to identify the genealogy and the family trees of families going right on down to the 1840s and 50s. Uh, what he was interested in was naming patterns. And this was indirect evidence for him because he found that enslaved people named their children after parents, after grandparents, after aunts and uncles. And he thought this wasn't random. This was an indication that, he, that they wanted those names to be remembered and they wanted those names to be passed on. In other words, families wanted their descendants to know where they came from. So that was where I was very lucky enough to have not only the, the inventories but also the genealogy work that Herbert Government did, not just for this plantation, but for other plantations as well, in his quest to demonstrate family ties among enslaved black people. And just to let the listeners and chatters know, you have in the book a photo of a Raleigh slave register from 1845 that lists Mary Walker and her children and her mother. So people yep. can see what one of these registers uh, look like. That's right. What what did your research reveal about Scylla and Mary's lives with the slave-owning family, the Camerons? Well, this 
slave-owning family was had a had a kind of informal, unwritten but very real strategy, which was to buy but not sell people into when they bought buy people in family groups. So they got the reputation as people who were considerate and people who were genteel. Uh, there were slave owners, but they kept families together. And that was an informal pact. The way a descendant put it in the 20th century was they stole your labor, but they kept you together. So the, the context for Philip and Mary was that they were not only part of this pact, this informal, unstated pact, but they were also household servants. Silva's uh, mother, Agnes Aggie, uh, was one of the only persons that I discovered who was ever listed as deranged. And we don't know what happened with her, but as a result, Scylla was taken into the household by Duncan Cameron's wife, Rebecca. And she became a seamstress, and she also became a person who looked after a personal servant of Rebecca Cameron. And then Mary Walker, as it turned out, followed suit. She became a seamstress, but instead of being a companion to the mother or the father, she in turn became a companion to the daughters. This very often happened. You had a, a personal servant for Duncan Cameron's daughters, and Duncan Cameron had uh, six daughters. Uh, so she became a, a companion to them. So these were these were servants who uh, lived in the household and who were part of this pact. And one of the one of the the brothers, uh, of uncles of Scylla and of Mary Walker, Luke, was a personal servant to Duncan Cameron. And so they had a kind of uh, privileged position and also a protected position in the family. Uh, were Scylla and Mary literate? Did your research yes. show whether they could read and write? Yes. Uh, Mary Walker, from a very early age, was the companion to the younger, youngest two of the daughters of Duncan Cameron. Duncan Cameron hired a woman from Ithaca, New York, as a teacher of the, of the children. So Mary Walker literally was with them when they got schooled. So she learned how to read and write from this northern teacher. She also learned, I think, a, a lot about cultivation and culture. Uh, she went to church with them. So she came out of slavery as a literate person and as a, a cultivated person. Her mother... I don't know how she learned how to read and write, but she did because there were letters that went back and forth between them. I've not seen those letters, but I've heard those the people describe those letters. So she knew something of how to read and write, and I think I think literacy got passed around informally among people in the enslaved community. It really wasn't until the Nat Turner Rebellion of 1830 that laws all across the South were went onto the books forbidding the teaching of reading and writing to enslaved people. The Camerons, I think, pretty much were in a position to ignore that, but that was the first big crackdown on literacy. So, yes, she knew how to read and write, and she learned it from a tutor from the North. Based on what you've just described, would it be accurate to say that Mary Walker was probably viewed by her slave owners as a loyal slave? Oh, unquestionably. Uh, there was every reason to think that, and I think there were several sources of what they might perceive and accurately perceive as loyalty. Uh, in the first place, uh, she got very good treatment, and when the young people, the daughters of Duncan Cameron, traveled, 
often to seek out medical attention. She went with them, uh, and she was trusted. She was also, I think, developed a pretty close relationship to the younger daughters uh, and her mother, a close relationship with Duncan Cameron's wife, Rebecca. So there was a human basis of loyalty, mutual loyalty, that was part of it. But then as she had children, and she ultimately had four children and a mother uh, whose only daughter was her, you know, there was another source of loyalty, which was she wasn't going to any place uh, unless she absolutely had to, and we'll get to that. She wasn't going any place because the Camerons were owners of her children. The children, as it turned out, were also household servants. So a combination of circumstances uh, surely made them confident that they could count on her. What circumstances brought Mary Walker and the company of Duncan Cameron and his daughters Margaret and Mildred Cameron to Philadelphia in 1846? It was tragedy. Uh, Mary Walker is in this household, and she is the companion to the younger of the daughters of Duncan Cameron. Duncan Cameron moved to Raleigh in 1835, and by then his daughters, for various reasons, had contracted tuberculosis. And within a three-year period, the four of his daughters died between 1838 and 1840. And then three years later, heartbroken, his wife died. And the youngest of the daughters, I think, was just traumatized by all of this death. And also, in some ways, had the survivor's mentality. You know, what have I done that justifies my living rather than my dying with them? So in 1844, she begins to develop these mysterious symptoms, spasms, paralysis, becomes a, an invalid. And they have no clue as to what the problem is or what the cure might be. Well, Philadelphia had the Jefferson School of Medicine, and the Jefferson College of Medicine, as it was called then, was the Johns Hopkins or the Mayo Clinic of its day. So when they couldn't get any answers in North Carolina in 1846, Duncan Cameron and his older and healthy daughter, Margaret, and the invalid daughter, Mildred, went to Philadelphia to seek help at the Jefferson College of Medicine. And Mary Walker went along as the companion of the invalid daughter and as the caretaker for Duncan Cameron and his older daughter. So they went for their health. And it was a, it was a desperate move, but also the only one that offered any hope, any cure, possibility of cure of this uh, invalidism. As you tell the story in your book, Mary Walker returned with the Camerons to North Carolina in 1846. In 1847, she accompanies them again to Philadelphia and then back to North Carolina. 1848 rolls around. She accompanies the Camerons to Philadelphia again. What happened in 1848 that caused Mary Walker to flee? Well, backtrack to 1846. So, there was a law in Pennsylvania that stemmed back to the era of the American Revolution and then the first capital of the new republic, which was also in Philadelphia, which allowed slave owners to bring their slaves to a state that did not recognize slavery as legal, where slave people, black people, most of the black people were free, bring them there and hold them there for six months and then take them home and then bring them back. And this was a concession to Southerners who were first in the uh, colonial early legislature and then in the early republic, and that law stayed on the books. So 
anybody who was enslaved and tried to escape would have been a fugitive. Well, tensions erupted between the North and the South, get hotter and hotter. In 1847, the state of Pennsylvania passed what's called a personal liberty law, which said that anybody who had been enslaved, who was brought voluntarily into the state, could claim freedom. So in other words, they invalidated this rule that went all the way back to the 1790s. So at that point, Mary Walker's three black friends in Philadelphia undoubtedly told her, you know, you could just walk away. But she had children back in the South, 400 miles away. She wasn't going to walk away. Well, in 1848, this is the third trip, the temperature is hot. Mildred Campbell, Mildred Cameron is not getting any better. Duncan Cameron, who is disposed to depression anyhow, is depressed and frustrated. Uh, and something happened between him and Mary Walker. She said something to him that he, I believe, took as impudence. Impudence was next to escape the worst thing that could happen between a slave owner and a slave. And at that point, we know from a deposition of one of Mary's friends that he threatened to send her to his plantation in Alabama in the Deep South. In fact, he said he was going to do that the minute they got back to North Carolina. So at that point, and I'm, in, I'm inferring, I don't have the actual exchange of words, but I do know all the circumstances. I knew, know his tendency to depression. I know he was depressed, and I know that he did make this threat. So at that point, Mary Walker is going to lose her family. She's going to either be going back to the North Carolina and then be exiled to Alabama, or she can walk away and be a free person and claim her freedom, exile or escape. So at that point, she chose escape. So after she escaped, uh, Mary Walker remained in Philadelphia for a few years. What did she do to survive and build a life for herself? Well, Mary Walker is a, is a gifted seamstress. And as it turns out, the, the usual pattern for people who escaped bondage in Philadelphia in the late 1840s and thereafter in the 1850s was to be taken in by a man named William Still, who was a great head of the Underground Railroad in Philadelphia, unofficially in the 1840s, officially after 1852. And she went to his office at the Pennsylvania Freedman, which was the anti-slavery newspaper. He took her home uh, to his house on Washington Street. Leticia, his wife, is a seamstress. So they took her in. They helped her get work. They put her in a among friends across the street, and eventually she comes into the household of a young man named James Leslie who's starting out as a merchant in Philadelphia, and they have a common connection in his housekeeper who comes to know Mary Walker. So by 1850, she's there on what was then called High Street, which is today called Market Street, the main artery in Philadelphia, uh, living in the, above the store of this young merchant in Philadelphia and earning her way as a seamstress. There came a point in time where Mary fled Philadelphia. What circumstances compelled Mary to leave? Two. In the first place, the Southerners who had found these personal liberty laws grating and annoying and also uh, insulting uh, felt that that had to come to an end. Otherwise, people would flee 
to these northern states, which had the personal liberty laws, claim their freedom, and one after another, slavery would just hemorrhage uh, refugees. So they eventually had their way in 1850, and as a part of the Great Compromise of 1850, which prevented the, the division of the Union in uh, that year, uh, they got their way with the Fugitive Slave Law, which basically allowed that uh, anybody uh, who fled bondage could be reclaimed as a fugitive and overrode these personal liberty laws, at least so Mary Walker thought and so some of the best anti-slavery lawyers thought. So now that law that protected her, that law, personal liberty law of 1847, looked like it was no longer going to afford protection. Well, that was bad enough. But the other thing that happened was that Duncan Cameron and his daughters came back to Philadelphia. They were literally a half a mile away. And Mary Walker knew where they were, and there was no question. They could find out where she was and claim her as a fugitive slave. So the law changed, and then with the return of Duncan Cameron and his daughters, she was vulnerable. She was terrorized, and she had to get out of Philadelphia. Half a mile was not enough space between her and the man who could claim her as a fugitive and then bring her back to North Carolina. And by the way, under that law, if an owner claimed you as a fugitive, you had no right to testify on your own behalf. The Southern laws applied. You were treated as an enslaved person was. No, you couldn't be a witness on your own behalf. So she was really exposed. So she got out. And where did she go? She went to the outskirts of Boston to a township called Milton, Massachusetts, which is indistinguishable from Boston now. And Massachusetts was a place where the head of the fugitive slave, the head of the Underground Railroad in that state, Lewis Hayden, said no fugitive slave will ever be captured in Boston. And they almost made good on that. Uh, so this was the hub of abolitionism, and it seemed like a very safe place for her to go to get refuge. Who assisted Mary Walker in her passage from Philadelphia to Massachusetts, to this Milton, an area outside of Boston? She was actually given a train ticket by James Leslie and several other people who bought the train ticket and took the train <laughs> to Boston. It wasn't Amtrak, but it was good enough to get her there. Uh, so she just took the ticket, and, you know, at, at that point, the fugitive slave law had just passed. Northerners were outraged about it. So there wasn't any immediate danger when she escaped uh, in late October 1850 of her being uh, swarmed upon by the people who specialized in kidnapping or recapturing fugitives. And James Leslie, was he instrumental in helping her find a place to reside once she got to Massachusetts? Yes, he had a cousin, Peter Leslie, who lived in Milton, who was a minister at the time, who was on the outs with the Orthodox ministry of Boston, Milton, Philadelphia, you name it, uh, and who at one point described himself as embattled and hunted like a like a fugitive slave. So he had every reason, and, and in response to the refusal of, all these people to ordain him as a as a minister in a regular congregation. He actually published a 58-page pamphlet with 70 pages of sermons, attacking them for attacking him. So James Leslie had every reason to think Peter Leslie would be sympathetic to 
Mary Walker's plight and would, wrote him a letter and said, would you take her in as a fugitive slave? So he had a cousin up there. And Peter, Leslie, was he married at this point when he agreed yes. to help out? He was wife married to Susan? Susan Leslie. And Peter and Susan Leslie had married the year before. And then at one point in 1850, she had miscarried and so she was recuperating. Uh, and both of these people were really extraordinary souls, and I use that word advisedly. Uh, Peter Leslie was a minister with, a, with, at the time, was a side interest in geology, but he was a very passionate man, a man who stood, had strong convictions and stood by his convictions, and that was a source of attraction for Susan Lyman, who became his wife, Susan Leslie, because in, in many ways she herself was on a quest to find a, a mission in life, a cause in life uh, that would put her among the benevolent women and men of the era. And Peter Leslie instantly was that kind of man. So they were not only people with souls, but they were truly soul mates who found in Mary Walker a cause that, in a way, both of them were looking for. And she, unbeknownst to her, and, and over, only over time, beknownst to them, really fulfilled a void in both of their lives. They were not abolitionists. An abolitionist was someone firmly committed to the end of slavery. They were anti-slavery, but they also were aware that abolitionism had all sorts of dangers for the country. It had people behind it who were really quite radical and quite outspoken, and at the time that they agreed to take Mary Walker in, they were not among that group of people. They were wary of that. In fact, Peter Leslie said that uh, he was invited to, to speak to an abolitionist meeting, and he said, you know, these people exaggerate. <laughs> There's a lot of hyperbole in what they say. And he said, I understand that. I understand that. And, and when it comes to their enemies, they treat them like, like they, are, they are bulldogs. You know, so he, he was averse to that temperamentally. But taking a fugitive slave was one of the things that he and Susan thought they had to do as a way to respond to this, what they considered to be an awful law. Let's take a break, and we'll return and discuss more about Mary Walker's relationship with the Leslies. Sydney Nathans, author of To Free a Family, The Journey of Mary Walker. I want to remind everyone that all of these shows 
are archived and available immediately after the broadcast as a podcast. If you would like to ask a question or make a comment, please call 646-200-0491 and press 1 to speak to the host. Dr. Nathans, would you share with us, as as you discovered from your research, how Mary Walker's relationship with the Leslies developed and deepened over the years? Well, let me just make a brief comment about their research. I was not only lucky enough to be able to use the collection of Mary Walker's owners, 90,000 papers at the Southern Historical Collection at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, which I used over a 30-year period, but also the, the great blessing that every historian dreams about was to locate the letters of the Leslies, the anti-slavery family, become abolitionists through Mary Walker uh, in private hands, uh, as it turned out, in Boulder, Colorado, 70,000 letters. So there were lots of letters to work with, but especially the, letter, the, the letters of the, of the Leslies. And it was through those letters uh, that I was able to piece together the relationship of Mary Walker with the, with the Leslies. Now, when Mary Walker came to the Leslies in Milton, Massachusetts, they only thought they would harbor her for maybe a few weeks, maybe a month, and then find a place where she could live. They were living there in a small house in Milton. Uh, but over time, uh, she stayed with them, became a part of their household, did seamstress work by the day or by the week for other people. And Mary Walker never for a minute had any doubt about her safety with them. They were bound and determined to protect her. And she was in Boston, which was itself her protecting place. But I think safety was one thing and secrets were another. Here's a light-skinned woman with long, straight black hair and eyes tending toward blue. And the obvious question was, well, where did all that come from? Who were her, who was her father? Who was her grandfather? Uh, and she had children in bondage. Well, who were the parents of these? Who were the fathers of these children? Well, never once did the Leslies ask those questions. And I think Mary Walker appreciated that. These were complicated secrets. Uh, and over time, uh, she and they, especially Susan Leslie, got close to her. And at a certain point in time when Peter Leslie gave up on the ministry because despite his sermons and despite his pamphlet, he was on the outs, and he decided he just had to go into geology and make his subfield his main field. And the work that was going to happen there was in Philadelphia. So he had to move, but he left Susan Leslie behind to take care of Mary Walker, and that's exactly what she did. She found her a good place for a time for her to work with somebody else that she trusted. And when that happened, Mary Walker realized this was a white woman that she could trust with her life and with her secrets. And I think it was at that point that Mary Walker opened up about her experience in slavery, the mother, the children, and over the next 40 years, the Leslie's never once put to paper any of those secrets. Uh, there was a couple of times when they shared a bit of it with some friends or with a relative, but never once. So she was right to trust them. And it, it's really at that point, I think, that her relationship with them deepens from a, an employee and somebody they're protecting and somebody they see as a symbol to a friend and then a family member. The Leslie's indeed sound like a remarkable couple. Uh, and the way that they befriended and protected Mary Walker. Uh, 
I want to move a little bit forward in time in your book. After learning of Duncan Cameron's death, Mary Walker, uh, through Peter and Susan Leslie, initiated a plan to rescue her family. Would you please describe that effort? So the context for that is that Peter Leslie um, and for, through a friend first tried to get some kind of word to, well, let, let, me, let me back up. Duncan Cameron died in 1853. And I think that from 1848 to 1853, in those five years, Mary Walker believed that her children would be safe and her mother would be safe. Often when slaves escaped, the owners took retribution by selling their families away. But Mary Walker was very close to and I think very devoted to the two youngest daughters, the surviving daughters, and they had a strong influence over their father, Duncan Cameron. And I think she believed and believed rightly that as long as those daughters and Duncan Cameron were alive, there wouldn't be any breakup of that family. It wouldn't be any reprisals against her children or her mother, and they were right. But Duncan Cameron died in January of 1853, and Mary Walker got word. And at that point, all those latent anxieties just came right out into the open. Well, what was going to happen to her children? Who, were going to, who was going to get them? Because they were property. Somebody was going to inherit those children. So she got a hold of the will, and it turned out it was the daughters, thank goodness, and not their brother, whom she did not regard as a reliable person. But even then, the the, the will read that the children would belong to the daughters and all their increase forever. Their children, their children's children, their children's children, children, and just you know, there was good news, but boy, was there bad news there. So at that point, she became obsessed with getting the children back. And seemed she could get her mother released. And there was first a kind of backdoor attempt at ransom and, and uh, getting food to them, and that didn't work. So Peter Leslie, who's now in Philadelphia, contacted the head of the Underground Railroad and the uh, one of the white members of the Underground Railroad in Philadelphia, James McKim, and he found them a man who claimed to have gone to the South once before and freed somebody up. And Peter Leslie hires him to be the one to go to Raleigh. But the, the the goal was to make contact with Scylla, Mary Walker's mother, and let her know what his mission was, but how to do that. And what they did was to send him to Boston and to meet with Mary Walker, and she he could ask her questions, she would give him information, and then give him something to identify the carpenter, as it turned out, as her emissary. So she gave him the earrings that she had. So he could go to Raleigh, and if he could make contact with the mother, talk to her, flash those earrings, and identify himself as a man who would come to rescue them. So, and and they were the, the Leslies were willing to use their whole savings, which was five to six hundred dollars, to pay this man and do what it took to get those family members back from from uh, from slavery. There's a question coming out of the chat, and you alluded to something earlier. The question is, why were you unable to view the letters between Mary Walker and her mother? The reference to those letters uh, came in the in the Leslie's correspondence that she had gotten a letter from uh, her 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 mother. That's right. Uh, let's see. I guess it was. Yeah, that's right. So. Uh, I, I never saw the letters. It was a, it was an indirect reference to 
the letter from her mother. So her mother knew she was in Philadelphia and had some sense of where she might be in Philly. But I never saw any letters from her mother, uh, nor, nor from Mary Walker to her mother. But it was, it was clear that, that there had been such uh, a correspondence there. Let's talk about another key moment in, in the book and in terms of what was going on in Mary Walker's life. How did Mary Walker learn in August of 1853 that her eldest child, Frank, had escaped a year prior? So after Mary Walker left, the Camerons still needed a servant. And so they hired a man who, from the area to come up with them. And he knew about Mary Walker. And he also was able to find out who Mary Walker's closest friend in Philadelphia was. So he came to visit that man and relay some information about Mary Walker's children. And it was he who provided the information that her son had escaped the year before. And this was the first, and then the friend wrote Mary Walker and said, your son, Frank Walker, has escaped bondage. So this was the first that she knew of that. So on the one hand, she's happy that he has escaped bondage. On the other hand, how in the world is she going to find him? He's, he's, he's saved himself, but he's lost to her. Did Mary Walker and her son Frank ever reunite? No. Her son Frank made an attempt to try to find out where Mary Walker was in Philadelphia. He had no idea that she had left Philadelphia for Boston. And so he wrote to the grandmother and asked her what the address was for her daughter in Philadelphia. Uh, unfortunately, he could only spell phonetically. So he writes not to Raleigh, R-A-L-E-I-G-H, but to Raleigh, R-O-L-E. And the minute that phonetic spelling was seen in the post office, that letter was snatched, and it found its way into Paul Cameron's hands. This was the brother of the sisters, the, uh, the son of Duncan Cameron. And he immediately sent uh, a posse up to Trenton, New Jersey, which is where the letter came from, to see if he could recapture Paul. We capture Frank, and I think at that point uh, he he doesn't succeed in that. And at, at that point, word goes out to Frank: "They're after you. You better get out of here." And from that moment on, he just disappears, never to be found again. In your book, you note that Peter Leslie penned an unsolicited letter to Mildred Cameron in September of 1859 on behalf of quote Mary Walker formerly in your family, unquote. Would you please read to us that letter? So I'll read you an excerpt, but, but this is the letter that hooked me, and I think others as well. So he writes in 1859, I have been lately touched to the heart with a case of heartbreaking distress, which you have it entirely in your power, I find, to cure. I have come to know one Mary Walker, formerly in your family, and I have seen how sick at heart she is about her mother and especially her two children. Her heart is slowly breaking. She thinks of nothing but her children and speaks of nothing else when she speaks of herself at all, which is very seldom. Her mother heart yearns unspeakably after them. She has saved a considerable sum of money to buy them, can command more from friends, and will sacrifice anything to see them once again and have their young lives renew the freshness of her own weary spirit. It is in this behalf that I address you to realize this hope of hers. 
Did Mildred Cameron ever respond? Mildred Cameron did not respond to that letter. Uh, this is a letter that was written in September of 1859. Recall that Mildred Cameron is a dependent. She is an invalid. She has a, a brother who has authority over her. She has now a, a her sister has married, and so she has another man who has uh, theoretically uh, authority over her and over any decisions that she makes. And she, she, whether the, whether the, the letter might have worked on, on a person who had independence, as I think it may well have, uh, she was not in that position. So basically, the any decision to release those children and to respond to that letter would have to pass muster with three other people, all of whom were in a position stronger than hers. So she never did respond. And and uh, a month later at Harper's Ferry, John Brown uh, raids Harper's Ferry, gets captured, but it really brings home the the to many Southerners the intense of Northerners. He's extreme, but you know he 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 gets cheered on by a good many Northerners. So I think the political climate a month later changed so dramatically that any gesture or concession on the part of Mildred Cameron w- would have been made impossible. In reading your book, there are well-known historical figures who pop up, and one is Frederick Douglass. How was he involved with Mary Walker? When Mary Walker's son escaped, she really put out an APB, an all points bulletin on him. And she was in the process of trying to hire somebody to go to Canada to see if he'd escaped to Canada. And at that point, Susan Leslie said, look, let, let, me, let me write Frederick Douglass. He is not only a person who will understand where you're coming from, because he was a fugitive from slavery himself, but he's the best connected uh, African-American man in the entire country. So she wrote him and asked if he had heard of Frank Walker. And he writes back this wonderful, moving, and beautifully written letter in which he says he hasn't heard of him, that he himself has been trying to recover a friend who's escaped 17 years before, that the first thing that people who like Frank Walker do is to hide themselves, change their name, go undercover, but that, and so he understands what Mary Walker is feeling and her her yearning, and he will try. And but he but he he wants her to know through Susan Leslie. He wants her to know that he knows exactly how she's feeling. It's really a wonderful, sympathetic, understanding letter from a man who's got a thousand things to do and speeches to write and correspondence to keep up, and he's appealed to, and he writes right back uh, this terrific response. That says a lot about him. It does. It does. It is it does. amazing Mary Walker's life story had been lost over time until you discovered it and brought it to light. In your book, you reveal how Mary Walker was invited to join Northern Reformers working to uplift former slaves on the Sea Islands off the coast of South Carolina. Mary arrived there in 1864. What can you tell us about her experience? I think she was invited to go there because one of the reformers uh, had a reason to go home to New England. And so she was invited to come down and look after some of the other reformers in the house that they were dwelling in. And there was every reason to think that 
these reformers were up to a lot of good, trying to bring the now freed people up to uh, good good work and uh, hopefully to get the land that they uh, had occupied as slaves possessed for themselves. And, and that was the optimism that took these reformers down there in 1861 and 1862. But by 1864, there was a standoff. The freedmen believed that they were going to be the trade, their wages weren't enough, there wasn't a commitment to turn over the land to them. The reformers were disillusioned because some of the former slaves had gone back to some of their old ways of dissembling and deception, and there was really a standoff between them. So Cease comes expecting to be helpful and expecting the reformers to be welcomed and discovers that these people were in conflict with one another. And she's caught in the middle. She's a light-skinned woman. The people in South Carolina are very dark-skinned, and they trust her or not. She's living in the household of the reformers. Uh, what, what exactly is her role there? But I think the lesson that she takes away is that freedom is not going to come just like that with emancipation, that this is going to be a long, hard struggle. If even the best of people with the best of intentions and the best of backgrounds, Harvard graduates, uh, come on down there and – the, the result is a standoff and a conflict, then, Lord, it's going to be a long haul. So I, I think she took that lesson away. She manages to keep the particular people that she's working with in good humor to try to keep them from doing things that will bring even make a, a bad situation even worse, and I think she succeeds at that. But when the option comes for her to stay on, she says, no, thank you, uh, and she goes back to the north. Mary's family was not freed until the end of the Civil War. That family consisted of her two remaining children held in bondage. Her mother was deceased at this point. What famous individual found Mary's children? That person, it turns out, was Oliver O. Howard, who shortly thereafter, shortly after 1865, became the first head of the Freedness Bureau. Oliver O. Howard heard about Mary Walker's story. A lot of people knew about her story. I believe you heard about the Mary Walker story and the fact that her children were still, might still be in bondage in Raleigh from Peter Leslie. They met on some sort of geographical, uh, geological uh, intersection. And he was a part of Sherman's army by then that occupied Raleigh without a fight. The civic leaders of Raleigh went out 15 miles ahead of the uh, the invading army said, listen, the keys of the city are yours. You guys can just walk in. There's no need to fight about this. And so they come in, and Oliver O. Howard is actually the, the first person to be in charge of the occupation of Raleigh. So I think within hours, maybe within days, he finds out where these children are. He finds them. He says, your mother is alive and well in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and she wants you to join them. And two months later, they do. And these children are her daughter, Agnes, and her son, Bryant. That's right. What can, what can you tell us about Mary's life after she was reunited with her children? The children come up, and by the summer, they're there, 1865. Uh, her son is a gardener and then becomes a coachman. Her son-in-law, who marries Agnes, uh, is a carpenter, and he becomes a steward at Harvard. Agnes is a dressmaker. And for a time, they all live together, but troubles arise. Uh, there are different kinds of difficulties, and uh, after a few years, it becomes clear to Mary Walker that the, she needs some way to 
secure the freedom of her children and the security household of their children uh, in Cambridge. And she is lucky enough to have family members, so the person that she was a caretaker for for 10 years, who understand her needs and who are able to help her buy a house in Cambridge where she can unite her family, which has been dispersed, so she can unite her son, her son-in-law, her daughter, and now three grandchildren in the same household along with herself. And then when this still not uh, doesn't seem to be quite secure, then a will is drawn up uh, which deeds the house uh, to trustees who will have that house in possession, their possession. It can't be sold until the youngest grandchild is 21 years old. So basically, this ensures that Mary Walker and her children and her children's children will be safe in Cambridge, in a very good Cambridge house, uh, until their youngest is 21. And the, the net result is that from 1870 to 1912, her family resides in this house. Mary Walker definitely had foresight. Yes. And maybe yes. that experience on the Sea Islands also <laughs> encouraged her to move along these lines to make sure she secured something for her descendants. Yes, freedom was not going to happen in one generation and be secure. So, and this is this is a house that turns out to be a famous Cambridge house. It's the the house of the village blacksmith in Cambridge, is made famous by the poem that neighbor Henry Wadsworth Longfellow writes. Uh, under a spreading chestnut tree, the village smithy stands. A mighty man is he. Anyhow, <laughs> I should have had the lines in front of me. Every New Englander would know this this poem. In fact, I've been I've given the talk in New England. They can recite the whole thing from memory. Uh, but it's a it's now a historic site in Cambridge and a and a, a place that is this, the home of the Cambridge Center for Adult Education and uh, and they they restored the house and it's I think a, a great tribute to her. She actually lived there longer than the village blacksmith or her family lived there longer than any other family or group uh, has been there. Pretty amazing. I wanted to follow up on something. Someone asked a question about how old the children were at the end of the war, and I'll let them know that Agnes Walker was 28 years old and Bryant Walker was 21 years old. Yeah, actually, she was younger. That was a mistake in that in that book. She, she's a little younger than that. It's been corrected for the paperback edition. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, yeah, but but those are those are the rough ages of the two of them, right? Uh, Have you been in I, contact? With a I'm family. Sorry, you want to say something? No, no, go ahead. Have you been in contact with any of Mary Walker's present-day descendants? Yes. Uh, I was – I knew that Mary Walker had written more than these three letters that I allude to. Uh, the three letters were the ones I certainly used, but I really had to rely on the Leslie's letters for the eyewitness account and, uh, and also the journal of a – of the family member, Aunt Kitty, Catherine Robbins, who became very closest, close to Mary Walker. So there are, there are hundreds of letters and hundreds of entries in the journals that give me the, the ability to tell her story. But what happened to the rest of Mary Walker's letters? And I decided I doubted that anybody had those letters. I wasn't sure that they knew about Mary Walker. Uh, there had been a lot of changes in Cambridge 
uh, in the 20th century and Jim Crow came to the north and there was every reason to believe that they would not have told their children about Mary Walker, even though some of them knew about it. But eventually I decided with encouragement from one of my adult learner students to go ahead and bite the bullet and I wrote a letter to a person I was sure was a descendant and she called me and I met with her and her aunt and I showed them a picture of this house on Brattle Street, the village blacksmith's house, and, and the aunt, Aunt Claire uh, Kenny, said, well, that's where Uncle Freddie used to live. And so immediately I knew they knew the house, and they knew Uncle Freddie, who was Mary Walker's grandchild. They didn't know about Mary Walker. And the great thing is that they embraced her and her story and have come to reunions, have come to talks, and in fact came to a reunion with the descendants of the Leslies in Philadelphia last year. Uh, which is just blocks from the place that Mary Walker lived in Philadelphia and escaped from. So it's been enormously gratifying to have them embrace her story and make her heritage their heritage uh, without any hesitation. And just now, there so, was one uh, moment. Yes. Go ahead. Just, uh, we didn't mention this, so I want to uh, make it clear for our listeners and chatters. Mary Walker's son married a woman, uh, an Irish-American. Yes. When he moved uh, she was actually, to relocate to Massachusetts. Right. She married, uh, she was from Ireland. Uh, she grew up in Ireland, 1840 to 1860, and then became an Irish-American. But she was born in Ireland and grew up there. Uh, and his children, their children, were baptized Catholic uh, and grew up Catholic and were members of the Catholic Church. And so they were, they were also mixed-race people. And by the 20th century, the census taker lists them as white rather than and mulatto. Uh, so they they kind of blend in, uh, and they had a choice. But as Jim Crow came to Cambridge, then I think their choice was really for ordained. Became became a penalty uh, for a person to be a, a person of color to have a drop of black blood, even in Cambridge, Massachusetts. So uh, that was the reason I think that they kept the secret from their descendants. Uh, what they didn't know, they wouldn't have to reveal. And so it's wonderful. I knocked on the door and, and revealed it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I did learn that one of the descendants was, you know, had been primed that, you know, this Duke historian was going to tell tell him about their ancestor and he called up his his uh his uh, uh sister and said, Sit down. We're black. <laughs> so <laughs> So there's still this sort of one-drop sensibility out there that was, I think, said in jest. I, I should say one more thing. Uh, the papers that I relied on were papers in private hands. And 70,000 letters, it was the largest known collection of American family papers in private hands. This, tomorrow morning at 9 a.m., those papers will be delivered to the Schlesinger Library at the Radcliffe Institute at Harvard. And by the end of the year, they'll all be open to the public. The family has donated them. Uh, to the library for use for generations to come. So it's, this is really a wonderful moment to celebrate the fact that all these papers were kept and that now they're donated to be used by anybody who wants to use them. And it's really a story that goes from the 18th century well into the 20th century. And it's wonderful how, because of your research, you brought the Leslie's and Walker descendants together again. Yeah, it was, a, it was a fine, fine moment at the American Philosophical Society in Philadelphia, and it kept in touch. And it's, it's really a beautiful thing, I think, that it that has happened. 
there. Any closing remarks? Well, I'm very grateful to you for the chance to talk about this. Uh, I've been blessed in the sources I've been able to use, and I want to say that I've used all the sources that your listeners use, the city directories and depositions uh, and maps. But above all, when I couldn't find anything else, I use Ancestry.com. And I have to say, that's a godsend. That has been an absolute godsend. And I've been able to find all sorts of things by a close reading of Ancestry.com that I wouldn't have been able to find. And the the digitized version. I first used it on microfilm, but now the digitized version is just superb. So I just want to tip my hat to all the people who were involved in in providing that as a source for the public. And we have have all definitely benefited from that. Well, thank you so much, and thank you for joining us. Uh, I encourage everyone to read this book. It is a fabulous book, and it is well told. Let me tell you about our guests for next week. Next week, on August 8th, we will have a rebroadcast of a previous show. But please join us on August 15th for a discussion about African-American foodways with Michael W. Twitty. He is a food writer independent scholar, culinary historian, and historical interpreter who is personally charged with preparing, preserving, and promoting African-American foodways and its parent traditions in Africa and her diaspora. He will highlight and address food's critical role in the development and definition of African-American civilization and the politics of consumption and cultural ownership that surrounds it. Good night, everyone, and remember, your ancestors left footprints, therefore you should follow the clues that are presented to you through oral history, family records, research at the National Archives and beyond. You can continue this discussion on Afrogenius.com and the research at the National Archives and Beyond Facebook page. Don't forget to listen to the African Roots Podcast with Angela Walton-Raji on Friday morning. And remember to join Nurturing Our Roots with Antoinette Harrell on Tuesdays and Wednesdays. Thank you for joining Research at the National Archives and Beyond. This is the guest host, Natan Elaine Kemp. Good night, and we look forward to you joining the show next week. Good night once again, Dr. Nathan. It was a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you very much.